I'm Alex Perrine. I'm a staff writer at The New Republic. And I'm Laura Marsh, the magazine's literary editor. This is The Politics of Everything, a show about the intersection of culture, media, and politics. Today, we're talking about the Supreme Court. With the likely confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett, conservatives are set to secure a majority for the foreseeable future. If the court can no longer be considered politically neutral, what place does it have in American politics? And what would it take to fix it? Later in the episode, we'll talk about the Melania tapes and how a story gets lost in the news cycle. This is The Politics of Everything. As we're recording this episode, the Senate is holding its confirmation hearings for Amy Coney Barrett. With the death of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg last month, Barrett would become the third Trump nominee on the Supreme Court, along with Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh. All three nominations have been controversial. Barrett's confirmation would help conservatives secure a majority that could strike down progressive legislation for years to come. For a lot of people, this raises bigger questions about the court. Why do nine people who are not elected have so much power over legislation in this country? And what do you do when the court favors one party so strongly over another? Today, we're talking with Samuel Moyne. He's a professor of law and history at Yale University, and he's written about the problems with the court and the new issue of the New Republic. Sam, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So Sam, the right currently has this hold over the court. One solution that's often floated is court packing. So the idea that if Joe Biden won the election as president, he could appoint more justices to the court. What would be the advantages of that strategy? Well, there's a rhetorical advantage that Democrats are understandably furious that Mitch McConnell has been a hypocrite on the one hand, denying Merrick Garland confirmation hearings in the last year of Barack Obama's presidency, supposedly on principle, and then allowing them this year even closer to the presidential election. And so from, a let's say, a moral point of view, Democrats think they have a very good argument that something abnormal has happened that they need to set right through court packing. And just at a very basic level, when we're talking about court packing, What we mean is there are currently nine justices of the Supreme Court. What is being proposed is adding a few more, right? So you'd need to add two if you wanted to be kind of narrow about it, focusing on Merrick Garland. And I guess the argument is you'd need one to cancel out either Neil Gorsuch, who took Merrick Garland's seat, or Amy Coney Barrett. And then you'd need one more, which is the one the Democrats should have had. Now, of course, there are folks out there who are arguing for many more, four, eight, ten, you know, Polish Supreme Court has over a hundred. So, you know, the sky's the limit. So it seems if we took the more modest proposal, it should be simple. Uh, Joe Biden manages to win. Democrats manage to win control of the Senate. That's well within the realm of possibility. And then you say, well, just out of fairness, just to reverse this injustice and not go any further than that, we just add a couple seats. We add two seats. What are the problems with just doing that and calling it a day? What potential pitfalls would there be? Well, there are a lot, I think. The most obvious is that the kind of modest court pack of two new liberal justices restores the status quo ante Neil Gorsuch, which was already intolerable for many of us. Mm. And that's in part the reason why some Democrats want to dream big. Now, if they 
if they do and, and propose more seats to add in January, they confront the fact that they've been arguing against violating norms for years. And they might get away with adding two as a kind of reparations for McConnell's violations of norms. But it's hard to see how they could get away with more grandiose court packing. But whatever they do, it seems like it's a fix at the level of personnel, mm-hmm. not power. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the short term, it, you, the Democrats would reap a lot of gains, just as Franklin Roosevelt did in 1937, though he failed formally in getting his attempted court packing to go through. He did exact a promise from the justices to stop it, to stop their interference with democratic legislation. We could get the same kind of promise. The trouble is over time, we've left the institution with the same power. And so that's why we're trying to think of this moment as another opportunity Mm -hmm. to think about the role the court ought to have, not just which people ought to be on it. Mm -hmm. As you say, right, if you are just trying to restore the partisan balance that existed before Trump took office, to do that, you have to violate a norm, right? And you and your co-author write in your piece that one of the downsides to that would be essentially that it would just spiral from there, right? Because Republicans would not be dissuaded from just waiting till they took power to do that themselves, right? Absolutely. I mean, I should say, you know, morally, I have no problem with norm violations. <laughs> Depends what the norms are and, you know, yeah. what, what the risks are of norm violation and in exchange for what gains. But it does seem that any norm violation is likely to invite tit for tat. Now, maybe the more modest court pack wouldn't, but a more grandiose court pack, you know, four, six, 10, 14, whatever, new justices would almost certainly invite this Polish scenario where ultimately you end up with hundreds. Now that might not be bad because (laughs) you can't have a court with hundreds of people for each case and it would then require cases to be heard by smaller numbers, which would create more variation, less predictability, less opening for ideological projects. But I think people should want to avoid pursuing our agenda, wasting our capital at the level of expanding the Supreme Court. Like, why? Mm -hmm. So as you've said, the problem is not necessarily with the nine particular individuals who are on the court, because this changes. And, you know, at some points in history, Democrats may really like those nine people and be very happy about it. But the problem is that they have so much power. Why is that? Has that always been the case? Not at all. So in the Constitution, it's staggering how little is said about the judiciary. And in fact, mostly what's said is about the power of Congress to set up the judiciary and give it its jobs. It was in 1803, famously in this case called Marbury v. Madison, that this power not mentioned in the Constitution, which we were called judicial review or judicial supremacy, namely to invalidate legislation, was announced. Now, the circumstances of that were fascinating because, of course, Thomas Jefferson had been elected in 1800. It freaked a lot of people out. I think it was, you know, in a way, a dry run for our own time because you had a never Jefferson movement. Um, And what it did before Thomas Jefferson took power as president was stock the courts with his enemies. And Jefferson said, look what they're doing. My enemies, the Federalists, are losing, but they're retreating into the judiciary as a stronghold. And what they did from that stronghold, what Chief Justice Marshall did is basically announce this new power 
that the judiciary has. Now, still, that power was not much used until the first Gilded Age in the late 19th century, when suddenly the Supreme Court became this censor of the laws and struck down progressive legislation to, you know, ban child labor or limit working hours. And suddenly the Supreme Court became very visibly this counter-majoritarian power, really trying to secure the ascendancy of the powerful and wealthy against the rising progressive movement. It is funny because there's one of those subjects where taught in schools, Marbury versus Madison as like a great case, truly like a piece of American history to be proud of. And as you say, judicial review was invented from whole cloth in that case. It's not in the Constitution. And when they got around to using it, exactly as you just said, it was on behalf of capital, on behalf of bosses, and to strike down progressive legislation. It's interesting that there have been attempts to weaken the court by adding people, but not by actually imposing restraints on those who are on the court. It, it's always fallen to the justices themselves to, to rein the court in as a sort of self-preservation move. Right. Can you tell us a bit about how that idea became kind of the way people tend to think about it? Sure. So we, we center the piece on this, you know, crusty old Brahmin uh, Harvard professor named James Bradley Thayer who basically witnessed how the Supreme Court colluded in the destruction of um, Reconstruction after the Civil War and kind of helped shut it down. And in response, he came up with this idea that we should kind of change the terms of judicial review, not abandon it. And he came up with this kind of, I think, masterstroke, um, which was to say the question the Supreme Court should decide is not whether a law violates the Supreme Court's own understanding of the Constitution. Rather, it's whether it would have been crazy for the legislature to pass this law with its understanding of the Constitution in mind. So kind of changing the question so the court would only intervene in a case of clear error. What happened, sadly, after World War II or really during and after, is that we get generations of justices who start renouncing the theory, even though they still claim to embrace it. That's judicial restraint, right? Because you still hear justices and Correct. judges claim to be applying it, right? Of course. It's, it's like a universal rhetoric belied by universal practice now on both sides of kind of America's politics. Mm -hmm. So the sad thing is that Thayer ended up changing the way judges talk. <laughs> um, not what they do. <laughs> and I think we should just learn from his mistake and realize that self-restraint isn't real restraint. Like any of us who've tried to diet, you know, know this. Well, we've learned from a lot of our institutions that norms based on the assumption that honorable people will always be in charge don't hold up when honorable people are in short supply. <laughs> Correct. And it's the rare person who doesn't use and abuse his power or her power. It's just an inevitability. It's too tempting to try to get good work in your view done through quick fixes and shortcuts because you have the power to do so. And so in the second part of the 20th century, when the justices kind of abandoned this principle, why was that? Well, a series of reasons. I mean, the most basic is that they could. Always a good reason. You know, they had their agendas. They all do. Justices are people. They're saturated with ideology, even when they claim to be servants of the law. So the liberals 
had, from my point of view, a good cause, that the Democratic Party of the time was deadlocked. It included a lot of Southern racists that had stopped FDR from doing anything for civil rights. And after World War II, in the face of the Soviet enemy making hay of American racism, it was clear to elites that Jim Crow had to end. And the question is, who would do it? And the other big force is that having a lot of power in the Supreme Court means that the legislature can kind of avoid responsibility. They can punt, For right? necessary change, yeah. yeah. And so, in a way, Earl Warren took one for the team and decided to get rowdy and strike down a lot of state laws that were in violation of the Constitution as he saw it and help make a civil rights revolution. Now, you know, he didn't get very far and lots of his work has subsequently been reversed, but it was tempting and, and understandable for liberals to act that way. They had their agenda, they had power, they used it because they could. Mm-hmm. So the idea is instead of passing legislation in that moment to say, this is how things should be, we're going to enact this, you pretend that the constitution has always has always agreed with your view of the way things should be. And, of course. And then it can be overturned. That's right. You know, if that led to a good place, maybe we wouldn't care that it's undemocratic technically, or it's less democratic. I mean, my beef is not just that it's undemocratic in its means, but that the ends have proved so elusive. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think the Warren court is still a seductive vision for a lot of American liberals, right? You know, Brown versus the Board of Education and these rulings like this are looked at as major, major touchstones in the path to a more free America. And I think it's interesting that you sort of say they accomplished less than we think they did. But you also say they blinded us to the limitations of relying on the court to be the sort of backstop of democracy, right? To say things are unjust, but if we get the courts right, we can use them to make them more just. Absolutely. I, I think actually everyone knows this in their heart of hearts. I mean, I've, I've liked to say that the idea of a beneficent Supreme Court is kind of like religion for Victorians. It's no longer credible, but people are scared to give it up. <laughs> They're not sure what would happen if they did. Mm-hmm. It's clear that Brown v. Board was decided. Nothing happened actually for 10 years. Mm-hmm. Only Congress got school desegregation done, and now it's almost entirely reversed, Mm -hmm. and the schools are segregated, not de jure anymore, but de facto. Meanwhile, the rights that we think, you know, the courts are a necessary bulwark against majorities for protecting, like the First Amendment, have been used for a neoliberal agenda in cases like Citizens United or Hobby Lobby. So when we look at the landscape of what the conservatives really often in alliance with the liberals on the most business-friendly court in the second Gilded Age in a century um, have gotten done. We, we can only conclude that like the good stuff is pretty paltry and the bad stuff is humongous. Mm-hmm. I found that part of it to be really persuasive in your piece when you sort of describe how the right has so skillfully perverted these rights that we think the Supreme Court helped us achieve. I think that the greatest perversity for me is that, you know, Laura didn't experience this, but for anyone like you and me who lived through high school civics, 
we've taken aboard the idea that legislatures are blind servants of interest, inimical to principle, and especially minority rights, when in fact, in actual fact, legislatures have done far more for providing rights to minorities and majorities than the judiciary ever has. So if we can unlearn civics and begin to treat the legislature as the thing we have to care about where battles have to take place, we might lose sometimes, but only through winning them can we create durable rights. Only in, in that way, I think, can we you know, envision a, a progressive future rather than the neoliberal one of late. Right. And of course, even if you lose those battles in the legislature, there will be elections where you can try and win back those majorities. Whereas with the Supreme Court, those people are on the court for life. That's right. I mean, the people who are on this court now may still be on the court when I'm retired. No, <laughs> you know, exactly. they're, they're going to yeah. live for a very long time. Uh, and it's true. They're going to have the same opinions unless there are some serious ideological journeys that happen there. I think that's um, right. So, your argument in the piece is that we need to take away the power of the court. What would that look like? How does that work? So um, I just want to make clear that there's a menu of options and we shouldn't get too obsessed with any one thing. Mm -hmm. For example, you could court pack, add two justices, and still not forget to engage in more fundamental reform. So it's not either or. But the disempowering reforms would basically say we need to transfer authority from the court back to the political branches. And the ways of doing that would be stripping the court of jurisdiction. Just as an example, if a Green New Deal statute passes under President AOC, the Congress can add to these statutes provisions that basically immunize them from court invalidation. There's also the supermajority rule idea, which basically says, okay, we want a court for the sake of really egregious violations of the Constitution, but only if everyone agrees or right. you know, more justices than five of nine. And the, the theory is that that would shunt power to the legislature because even justices who want to wield the immense powers have to get more of their fellows to agree with them to do so. Part of what you're really highlighting in the piece is the extremely undemocratic nature of the court and how it really undermines the will of the people. And the reforms that you're proposing would drastically reduce the undemocratic nature of it or their ability to squash legislation that people want. But I'm wondering how you think that fits in with other parts of the American political system that are also, if not entirely undemocratic, then certainly counter-majoritarian. For instance, the Senate. <laughs> sure. Do, does this need to be part of a broader set of reforms? It does, and it's not intended to be standalone. District of Columbia and Puerto Rican statehood, the abolition of the Electoral College. I don't think that any big challenge to the Senate is in the offing. But as I noted, it's not just that the, those factors have meant Republican dominance on the Supreme Court over time. Mm -hmm. In an ordinary case, we say... Well, the Supreme Court's still sort of democratic because the president was elected and, you know, the Senate confirms. But now we're getting undemocratically elected presidents hmm. and, you know, senators who represent very few people appointing folks who rule the vast majority of Americans. And that's sort of unprecedented. 
and obviously intolerable. I am now, I would say, convinced about the desirability of disempowering the court. I have long believed in abolishing the Senate. And I think between those and court packing, my ideal outcome is a couple years from now, we just have two vestigial House of Lords. Just two of them. That's <laughs> just like sure. old, old people in robes who don't do anything. <laughs> Again, that, that was Thayer's goal, was <laughs> you know, to, to report back from England and say, mm-hmm. wow, look what happens when the House of Commons is in charge yeah. without any checks. Uh, now things go wrong. Democracy is not you know, utopia. But at least there's self-rule and we have to take responsibility for its outcome. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, I was going to ask, is what you're ultimately advocating for a sort of quiet shift toward a parliamentary system? Absolutely. That was always the goal of progressives really globally on the English model until American hegemony. The Supreme Court was seen widely around the world as this archaic feature that should not be emulated unless you wanted to restrain democracy, as a lot of aristocrats and others did. And so the puzzle is how progressives took it into their head, not just in America, but globally, that this anti-democratic institution could advance their ends. Well, they were fooled. Thank you so much for talking to us, Sam. Thank you for having me. can read Sam and Ryan Dorfler's article in the new issue of The New Republic. It's called Making the Supreme Court Safe for Democracy in print and up on the web now. After a short break, we will be back to talk with J.C. Pan and David Roth about the story that everyone's talking about, the secretly recorded tapes of Melania Trump. They say I'm uncomplicit. I'm the same like him. I support him. I don't no. say enough. I don't do enough. No. It's, where, it's, where I am, I put the, I'm working like a ass, my ass. I know. Christmas stuff that, you know, who gives a f- about Christmas stuff and decoration, but I need to do it, right? In early October, Stephanie Winston Wolkoff, a former friend, one might say a fake friend of <laughs> Melania Trump, released some recordings she'd secretly made of the First Lady during the summer of 2018. On the tapes, Melania swears, complains about the liberal media, and speaks dismissively about ICE's family separations. It could have become a major scandal for a normal First Lady, but Melania Trump is not a normal First Lady, and shortly after the tapes were released, she caught a lucky break. She and her husband were diagnosed with COVID-19. So we are joined now by J.C. Pan, a staff writer at The New Republic, and David Roth, a frequent contributor to the magazine and co-owner of the new sports website, Defector Media. My first question is for David. Will history look back at the release of the Melania tapes as the day Trump lost the election? I think already everybody's talking about it like that. (laughs) They were like, well, you you can't elect somebody whose wife uses a definite article when referring to Christmas. Is that really even allowed? <laughs> I, um, I would love to live in a world where this was actually like the thing that everyone had talked about. This was about. the thing that was that had been on TV for the last like week, right? Yeah. <laughs> like at some point, like I'm like pitching a story where I'm like, enough about the Christmas tapes. <laughs> we need to get back to substance. Sadly, no, uh, it's just everybody's sick and or dying. But let's just let's just establish the time frame, like the lifespan of the story. 
was, oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I yeah. would put it, and you can disagree with me, I would put it at five hours because it came out around <laughs> 2 p.m. on a Friday, October 2nd, right. uh, kind of in that period after the presidential debate where people were like, oh, that was horrible. And then the Melania thing was like, oh, we can focus on this a little more. It's something new. And then the Trumps were diagnosed <laughs> with COVID and it was just gone. Yeah. Because they saved the COVID for a Friday night surprise, for like yeah. after the markets closed. I did a little bit of a deep dive into this, which I think most people have not. Um, and the Daily Mail tried to do like have a second bite at the apple in the beginning <laughs> of the next week when more tapes were in fact released. Uh, and it just sank like a stone. I mean, did you even know there was a second batch of these tapes? No, I did what not know the, there was a <laughs> What were the other tapes? Um, so they feature her comments on Stormy Daniels. Uh, Annie Leibovitz shot the porn hooker, and she will be one of the issues September or October. What do you mean she, she shot the porn hooker? Stormy. So there's a real trifecta of people named Stephanie because the woman who wrote this book, is, <laughs> it's actually very hard to keep track. There's Stephanie Winston-Walkoff who wrote the book. And then there's Stephanie Grisham who has replaced Stephanie Winston-Walkoff as the first lady's confidant. Backup Stephanie. Yep. <laughs> I didn't know that Stormy was also a Stephanie, but you're right. That's incredible. So there's like three Stephanies, all with very different perspectives on this story that no one read. <laughs> it's honestly like that might be the most remarkable thing. We should probably just talk about that. Well, <laughs> well, on the subject of the various Stephanies, something I've been thinking about is, you know, obviously Melania sort of got off light by <laughs> contracting COVID along with her husband. But I also think that, you know, in the kind of melee that erupted, Stephanie Wolkoff got off light too. So first of all, you know, she is this kind of like ruling class barnacle who's been a member of the Trump entourage for years. And only recently did she decide that she was going to defect and was quickly sort of absorbed as the newest member of the resistance. But it's like, who is this person? Stephanie. Stephanie does not come off well. Melania may be complicit. <laughs> so are you. Yeah. Well, that's because, I mean, the reason these exist is that she's flogging a book, right? Right. Mm -hmm. I think what we're getting into here is the take mill that would have been constructed had there been room in the news. There simply was not room in the news for people to get to the second order takes of like, well, what about Stephanie Wilcox? Uh -huh. Yeah. <laughs> But there is a sense in which this book fits into like a broader genre of books by people who have heroically left the Trump administration, but never managed to account for yeah. the fact that they were in the Trump administration. Like even the Michael Cohen book, right, I think was probably the least praised of those with John Bolton being at one end of being kind of like praised and let off the hook for anything bad he did. And Michael Cohen being like slightly too disgraced to get that level of respect, but still being an interesting little thing. And then there's this book, which I think people haven't managed to place quite accurately because there just wasn't time. There was like three hours to make something of it. And then we all moved on. <laughs> right, right. But, you know, you get the sense that like Melania's frustration in the tapes is about the fact that it's the first time in her entire life she's been subject to negative attention, perhaps. <laughs> and I think there's a sense that neither her nor her flunky signed up for this. John Bolton absolutely signed up for this. And he's mad because he didn't get to do a He didn't war. get to do what he wanted to do, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> to me, what's really interesting about this story is not just the tapes themselves, which in you know in a different moment, I might be inclined to say, like, this is frivolous or something. But the fact that it became a non-story so quickly. It's, a, it's much more fun to talk about because of that. Oh, I, absolutely. Because <laughs> it's like, it's a meta discussion. Like we're not actually doing an episode on Melania's tapes. Yeah, no, don't worry. Yeah. We're above we're, that. We're talking about the framing of it, right? <laughs> well, this is like, you know how there are those podcasts where um, their whole thing is that they're really deep cuts about history. It will be like, oh, here's the scandal from the 1990s that like you don't remember anymore, but it's really interesting and explains everything. This is that, but for something that happened two weeks ago. That's the way I I pitched this episode. So going back to how it became a non-story, I feel like it's the fulfillment of every publicist's dream, which is to be able to actively bury a story. And I'm not suggesting that the Trumps deliberately contracted COVID because that would be insane. And also the timeline doesn't work. (laughs) But I'm trying to think, is there an example of a story even on this scale being buried? I can't think of one. Like I mean, stories like this don't just like I can sort of think of one. Oh really? Yeah. I mean it's it didn't get buried, but wasn't like the grab them by the pussy tape release basically followed immediately by the first of the email dumps? The Podesta emails came out immediately after that, yeah. Yeah. That's true. But that one like, is definitely calculated. Like it's not the sort of thing where, you know, you're like, we only have one option, <laughs> sir. Like I have to give you COVID. <laughs> like that was clearly like <laughs> But also, if you go back to the Access Hollywood tape, sure, it it didn't get as much play as it could have done in a slower news cycle. But when you think about the afterlife of that story, grabbing by the pussy, the whole pussy hat thing, like that's still with us. That really resonates. Yeah, that's true. I mean, maybe you'll meet someone who can quote, who gives a fuck about Christmas. (laughs) But that should be a much more culturally resonant line for the first lady to have said. I guess the thing that I remember being the only other first lady related controversy that really stuck during my life of paying attention to politics was Hillary Clinton being like, I'm not there to bake cookies or something like early in the Clinton administration. People really latched onto that and she had to respond to it and be like, I actually think cookies are fine. Like I'm more of a brownies (laughs) person or whatever. Then that's a whole other news cycle. And in this instance, like, this is a very swift and deep burial of the thing. The cookies line is like the exact right analogy to show how the media environment has changed and how these standards are applied to these people who are not technically politicians when we're talking about first ladies. But it reminded me of a good joke that I, I think Adam Serwer had. He said, it turns out like Melania was the one with the whitey tape. <laughs> <laughs> that was a rumor about Michelle Obama for years on the right. And it was the most absurd rumor imaginable if you knew anything about Michelle Obama. But there was a bombshell tape somewhere in which she used the derogatory term whitey to refer to white people. Then here we have instead, uh, I don't give a fuck about Christmas. <laughs> yeah. Like, is it wrong of me that I'm feeling weirdly nostalgic about very stupid media cycles from the past? Where like a media environment in which this would have actually been a scandal? <laughs> Not at all. I mean, that's why we're all here today, right? There's something like antique about the idea that like this is the tape that changes everything. Yeah. I mean, obviously that would be a stupid example of it, but the idea of like an action being followed by a consequence that then has like a bearing on the outcome feels <laughs> like something that happened in the 19th century to me now. Yeah. Like it just absolutely <laughs> does not compute with like what we're talking about here. All right. Jen and Dave, thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for having me on.
This is the politics of everything. Thanks for listening.